All right, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Exodus chapter 15, as we're going to continue our series this morning in Exodus. We're going to look at what happens after the God's people cross the Red Sea. Now, um, I wasn't sure if I would ever talk about this publicly from the stage, but I'm going to this morning for the first time. So I moved here over a year ago from California. Um, I'm sorry, you know, on behalf of all of us who did that. Um, although it turns out that that's like half the people that I meet. So, you know, there's, there's more of us than I thought. Um, but one of the things that there were a few things that people told me when I moved here, one of them was uh, that I was going to have to get used to. One of them was the weather. Um, and, and I have had a lot of conversations with the only person that I know of who's in control of that. And the other one is the driving. People said, you're going to want to uh, slow down. Uh, while you're driving Californian, okay? Because we don't, we're not in such a big hurry like all of you are down there. Um, and that was indeed true. Um, people don't drive as fast here as in California. Um, in California, everyone goes like at least five miles over the speed limit. It's like normal to even go 10 miles over the speed limit on a freeway. Like you could drive by a, a cop with a radar gun and he'll just be like, hey, hi, you know, like when you drive by going 10 miles over because that's like how fast everyone drives. That's kind of the speed limit there. It's totally different, right? So I moved here, started driving and uh, had to really deal with some frustration that I was feeling about uh, how slow everybody around me was driving. I got my license plate changed as soon as I could so that people wouldn't know um, who I was or that I was from California. But um, is there a tissue down here anywhere? There, I need this, sorry. Um, the, uh, I started driving slower and I changed my license plate. But what I realized while I was, uh, while I was doing this was that um, it was a very frustrating thing. Um, I felt like everybody was in my way and I was constantly like, uh, even just driving to work, which my commute is very, very short, uh, just being like, come on, you know, get out of the way. Like what's going on? Let's hurry up. We could get so much more done if we just went faster, if we just sped up everything that we're doing. And I'm going to be honest, I spent a lot of time in my car grumbling about people. It wasn't just the speed at which people were driving. It was the fact that sometimes it felt like I, could, I, was, in their, in, I was in their brain while I was driving behind them because they were, they were using their car as like a way of basically thinking out loud. It was like you could be in a parking lot and you're like, I can see your brain working right now while I'm behind you in the car because you're like, do I, don't know, do I want to go? Uh, what I'm trying to figure out. Like, I know that's happening in the car in front of me and it's driving me crazy. And there was a lot of that kind of a stuff that I had to deal with. And I would spend a lot of time in my car, like, grumbling about this is not how you're supposed to do this. Now, fast forward a year later, I was driving to work, uh, like a month ago, and there was this car that was, like, right on me from behind. Like, right, like, riding me. And I'm like, slow down, man. Like, like... <laughs> I'm driving to work, you know, what's the point of all these trees if you can't stop and look at them and enjoy them, right? And, and I'm like, we're not going anywhere, right? Whatever big deal thing you've got to do, let's just slow it down so I can enjoy my drive to work. And I look down and I'm going like really slow. I was actually going five miles under the speed limit. I was like, posted. But I was like, but why not? You know, it's not a big deal. I can go that slow, you know? And then it started to just drive me crazy. All these people who are like speeding around here, like flying around here, they're in such a hurry. They're going so fast. They think what they have to do is so important that they don't have time to slow down. It's probably Californians, people that are moving down. 
I think that the idea of uh, grumbling is not something that we do, right? That's something that other people do. Complaining, that's not something we do. That's something other people do. What we do is called constructive criticism, right? What we do is we identify a situation that is just not going the way it should be, and we offer, you know, constructive criticism for how it ought to be going. Uh, This morning when we talk about the Israelites, we're talking about this idea of God presenting them with, here's the way things are going to work now. And them having two options of the way that they deal with that. One is grumbling, and the other one is gratitude, uh, gratefulness for what God has done. Now, uh, this is not one of those sermons that you get to go, oh boy, I know somebody who needs to hear this. I actually had people telling me that after the second service, like, I know somebody who really needs to hear that sermon. That's a really good one to hear. Uh, This is for you. This isn't for somebody else. Um, If you have a Bible, like I said, open it to Exodus 15. We're going to look at a real small portion right at the beginning here um, of our passage, which starts in verse 22. And it's going to kind of set the stage for the rest of it. Exodus 15, 22, we'll read about, about this. It says, uh, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They just crossed the Red Sea, obviously. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. So, stop right there for a second. So, if you know anything about civilization, you know this isn't actually that big of a surprise. You can be the most civilized, organized society, and when food or water are scarce, and we don't know that we can rely on them for tomorrow, then things fall apart right? No matter how civilized your society is. If there's some kind of a natural disaster and you run out of the ability to get food, the ability to get water, then you now have a panic on your hands. Or if something has happened and it's caused people to think that we will run out of food or water potentially, or we might be limited in our ability to do it. Maybe there's a storm coming and we're not really sure. What happens? People panic. People run out and they get whatever they can. So this is not that unusual to hear that the Israelites are feeling this way or handling this situation this way. This is kind of a normal thing. They've been put in the desert, wandering in the wilderness, and now they find themselves thirsty with like the most basic need that they have, thirst. They come upon water and they think, this is great, this is exciting. There's a bunch of palm trees and water and it's like an oasis, but instead the water's water that they can't drink. And so how does God help them? He does the thing that he has done every time up until now. He gives them a miracle. He shows Moses a log. God can pull miracles out of anywhere. And he says, shows Moses a log, Moses throws it in the water and it makes it easy to drink. Now, we talked last week about how God does this. God shows up in ways that are, that are incredible. He shows up in our lives in times that are seemingly miraculous and uh, that are miraculous. And that as a result of that, what we should do is we should expect that ours is a God who gives us confidence and we know that we can rely on him and count on him, even supernaturally that we don't need to live dictated by just our circumstances around us. And we talked about what that means to have hope as individuals in our lives because of what God's done. What that means to have hope as a people, as a church, because of what God has done. And to believe that God's going to continue to be faithful. And he's going to, at times, continue to even do miraculous things that we can't explain. But there's a thing about miracles. Miracles don't really sustain as much as we would like to think that they do. We often think that if God showed up in a miraculous way, that we would believe. Not just now, but we would believe forever. But it turns out that that's not how it works. Over time, the impact seems to fade. We often even find ourselves excusing these miracles away or asking, 
if they were ever really what they seemed to be at the time. Miracles, it seems, are not a strong enough foundation for a real living faith day to day for the rest of your life. It does seem to be that they almost don't function that way like we would want to think they do. And so the Israelites have had miracle after miracle after miracle, but they need something else. They need something else as a way of God providing for them, interacting for them, and that's what's about to come. We read this in uh, chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 12. This is a little bit of a longer passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. So the people have become hungry. They want to know where they're going to find food. They want to know how they're going to get sustenance of any kind. Oh, wait, I started too late. Okay, 16.1. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, After they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my way, in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said this to all the people of Israel. At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of my people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. We'll stop right there. Now, uh, God is providing food for his people because they're hungry in the wilderness wandering. And the people grumble. They've started out grumbling, and they're going to grumble all the way through this whole thing, all the way through these few chapters that we're in this morning. Now, uh, it's very interesting that Moses says to them, first of all, first of all, let's be clear, Israelites, you're not grumbling against me. You're not grumbling against Aaron. You're grumbling against God. You're grumbling against the very God who brought you out of Egypt up till this point. So just so that we can be clear, he's the one that you're complaining to. And he says that to them so that they know the gravity of what they're doing. The gravity of what they're doing is that they are doubting the very God who has up till now provided what they've needed for them. So when I read this and I see the way that they handle it and I see where all this is going, I cannot help but think about the idea of picky eating. Because if you've ever had kids and you've had to deal with kids who don't want to eat what you put in front of them, you know how sometimes frustrating that can be. Oftentimes absolutely downright infuriating. Of a lot of parents that I've talked to, some of the most, like, some of the biggest fights that have happened, especially when their kids were young, were over eating. 
And my kids will get, I'll give them food. I will make them food to eat. And they will be like, I don't want that. You know, I want this. Now, I try to think to myself, okay, why would my kid do something like this apart from the fact that, well, you know, they're a little kid. But I'm like, okay, I get it. They look at me and they go, listen, you can make me whatever I want. I know because you've done it before. And there's the fridge, right? So just go back in there. This is totally how they think it works, right? Like I give them something, it's like a suggestion, right? Okay, no, I don't think that's going to work for me. So go back in there and find me that one thing that I will only eat maybe. And that's what will work for me. You can do it, right? You can give me whatever. I've seen you do it. I've seen you give me that or make that for me. So why aren't you doing it for me right now, right? This is essentially the way in which the Israelites will interact with God again and again and again. We know that you can do whatever. Uh, Apparently, you can do these miraculous things. And so they grumble when things don't turn out the way that they want them because they go, that's how it can work. So why isn't it working that way? There's something very important that's happening here as God begins to give his children manna from heaven. You see, what happened with the Israelites in the last portion of scripture that we looked at last week was huge. They came through the water, and as they passed through the water in the Red Sea, they were saved through the water. There's a ton of symbolism and parallels that, go, that, that, that connect between what happened when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea and what has happened for those who believe in Jesus and trust in him because of his death. We believe that just as their enemy pursued them and that they were basically dead, Um, without the intervention of God, our enemy who has pursued us and what sin has done for us has caused us to be spiritually dead without the intervention of God. And so what has he done? He has intervened and brought us through the water. He has used that, 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 the the thing that we celebrate even in baptism, right? Where, Where we go down and die to our old self and we are raised again, cleansed from sin in our new life and our new self. We're basically born again through that experience symbolically that we're washed clean and our enemy is gone now, right? We don't have to live in fear of the slavery of death anymore. And so God has brought his children through this. They are born again and they are now like newborn children. They interact with him like infants. They interact with him like little children. And what God is about to do is he's about to use the wilderness to do the very thing that happens to each and every one of us if we've chosen to follow Jesus, which is to go from a point of conversion to the long, often difficult road of sanctification, the road of becoming more holy, a more holy people. That's what he's about to do through this time. And how does God choose to do that? He chooses to essentially help them grow up by providing them a situation in which they will have to count on him every day for the most basic of need in the most unexciting and unmiraculous, it seems, way. Even though it is miraculous, it's not water being split, oceans or seas being split in half. It's not the plagues and the things that we've seen. It's going to become a daily occurrence. The quail's going to come, the bread, the manna's going to come every day, except for the sixth day. We're going to get used to it. It's going to become the most routine thing ever, right? And why he does this is because what he's doing is he is growing them up. He is maturing them through sanctification. Now, the process of sanctification is often a painful one for us, and it's because the goal that God has is this. And let's always be clear on God's goal. His goal is that he would get glory. Okay, that's his goal. His goal with us in creating us was that we would ultimately glorify him. 
And so to be sanctified means to be better and better at living in a way and behaving and acting and believing in a way that ultimately doesn't even bring us more glory, but bring God's, brings God more glory, which is really hard for a lot of us to wrestle with, right? Because for many, that's not our understanding of what it is to maybe follow Jesus. We're not very good at living so that God can get glory. We're often very good at living so that we can get glory, so others can get glory. And this is true of any culture of any kind of person. In a Western individualized society in which we live, there's no higher goal than us individually getting glory, us individually being significant. My ability to achieve and distinguish myself and know that I am valuable, that I have lived a life that was valuable, is huge. My glory. Now, you can go to more traditional or sort of uh, a lot of Eastern societies or cultures that are more community-based, and you have a different thing that the glory is focused on. It's focused on your family or your group or the people that you belong to or your community. They receive the glory. I live for, I, I, I even subject myself sometimes for their glory. We have a hard time wrapping our mind around that in an individualistic society. But nevertheless, still, it's as difficult to say God gets the glory, not my community, not my family, not my name, not me individually, but he gets the glory. It's a really hard thing for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. Even Christians can choose to follow Jesus and do so in a way that we believe ultimately will bring us glory and will bring us significance. For many, turning to Jesus and following God is a way of achieving sort of the ultimate kind of significance and glory for ourselves. There's a book that I, that I read years ago called Ordinary, sounds like an exciting book, right? It's by a theologian named Michael Horton, and he wrote this book. I think it was kind of a book, honestly, written in response to the book Radical, because there's a book called Radical. This is the great checks and balances of the Christian, of like the Christian literature world, is there will be a movement one way, and then there'll be a movement another way, and it's kind of a way of helping us not go crazy with one thing, but instead realize, well, but the Bible also talks about this. And he wrote this book on the importance of of being faithful to God in the daily, ordinary things of life and how that characterizes most people that have followed Jesus over time. And how if we are obsessed with the big, exciting things and everything being significant, it's kind of the idea that if God really is alive in my life, then I will be amazing and do really big, impressive things. But ultimately, is the root of that in him receiving the glory or us? Do you see why sanctification can be a difficult process? Because of what we have to almost unlearn in order to ultimately be a people who bring glory to him. He says this in his quote on, a, in one of the quotes in his book on, on ordinary, in this book, Ordinary. He says, being ordinary means we reject the idolatry of pursuing excellence for selfish reasons. We aren't digging wells in Africa to prove our worth or value. We aren't serving in a soup kitchen or engaging in spiritual disciplines because we long to be unique, radical, and different. When we do these things for selfish reasons, God becomes a tool for winning our Lifetime Achievement Award. Our neighbors become instruments in the crafting of our sense of meaning, impact, and identity. What we do for God is really for ourselves. When many of us are honest, this is a real struggle. To say that we even do things for God and His glory, but to recognize that we are often doing them for ourselves and our own glory. And for some of us, we even exemplify this for the next generation that goes beyond us, right? In saying, like, you're so significant that ultimately people should be seeing your glory rather than God's. This, in order for God to have a holy people who show the world who he is, they need to be a people who trust him and depend on him 
and who ultimately reflect his glory. And so he sets up a system of living for them in which they will have to depend on him daily just for food. And ultimately, he's going to introduce a way for them to depend on him for water as well. There's a couple of things that holy people are characterized we're going to see. And one of them is the alternative to being a grumbling person. Because like any child, and they are starting out as children here, like any child, they can choose to respond to an act of generosity and provision by their parent with either grumbling or with gratefulness. And a holy people are a people who are characterized by gratefulness. They say, I'm grateful for what he has done that that characterizes me. It's not my circumstances. It's not my situation. It's not this one good gift that I got that made me grateful today. It is the incredible difficult task of saying, oftentimes, I am grateful even when things aren't easy. The word grumbled, I don't know if you noticed in the last passage, but it's in there a lot. They really make sure to say the word grumbled a lot, and it's in all the passages we look at in these few chapters. That word grumbling, word grumble translated literally, it's, it's complaining, but it's complaining in a way that's kind of like a murmur. So what that means is like at this time, there's probably not a lot of voices kind of shouting out above the pack, right? I want, I want Moses to hear my voice and to know it was me that said it. It's more just like a grumbling of people. It's like it's this background noise that's constantly going on, this muttering and complaining on such a low level, Right? It's like all the little babies in Israel didn't need white noise machines to fall asleep at night because they just had like a constant white noise of grumbling. That's what it was like. It was just like, you get the sense that it's just grumbling, 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 grumbling. We're not happy. We're not happy. Things aren't good. Things aren't good. People could either just get in the habit of being ungrateful and unhappy and grumbling, or they can actually, they can actually be grateful, but a holy people are going to be grateful. Uh, we'll read on here in chapter 17 starting in verse 1. And the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So like I said, they've been born through the water and what God is wanting to do with his people here is he is ultimately wanting to grow them because even though they are his children, what he ultimately desires is for his children to relate to him like adults relate to their parents, not like children. There is a sense in Scripture throughout that we grow up in our faith, that we start out as infants and children, but we actually grow up and mature. And so the idea that we see here is that, that these holy people will actually grow up in the faith. They'll mature, and they will relate to him like an adult child relates to their parent. 
Now, if you're a parent and you have got adult children, depending on what you think of them and how they relate to you, you either know the frustration and disappointment of feeling sometimes even like a failure if you go, they don't actually act like adults and they don't treat me like an adult, even though they're older now. And those of you who have grown up children who are like that, who, who, who act like adults and treat you like an adult ought to treat their parents, you know that profound sense of rewarding feeling that comes from going like, I, okay, maybe I did it, you know? They grew up and they act like an adult. And there is like this great enjoyment that comes from the relationship that an adult parent can have with an adult child. Knowing even though you're my child, it doesn't change our relationship. It doesn't change the fact that I'm your parent. It doesn't change the fact that you're my child. The only thing it changes is that you grew up and now we can have a different kind of a relationship that is so much more than the relationship that we had, right? That's such a wonderful thing to be able to experience for people. And there is a desire that that God is growing his people up, and you see this. Listen, we have to go easy on the Israelites at this point. We really do. It's easy to pick on them and say they're like so immature and childish. Well, they are children. I mean, they have, they have lived their lives in slavery up till this point in Egypt. They have not known what it is to serve a God like this, to be left in the wilderness and have to depend on him like this. And so they are brand new to this, and he's going to bring them along for years in simply trusting him in the daily provision of life to show them every day, day in and day out, I've given you enough for today. You have enough for today. And we don't grow up and mature by the miraculous happening all the time. That's not what matures us and grows us up. In fact, for many who have had miraculous things happen in their faith, they have often come to find that that is not a lasting enough thing to grow you up in a way that you have an actual faith that can last for a lifetime. That comes from something different. The same author said in this book, Ordinary, he said, the problem is when people enter adulthood, they soon discover that a memorable experience will not compensate for a shallow understanding of what they believe and why they believe it. If we depend only on the miraculous, it will not grow us up. If we depend only on the, the, the things that happen rarely that are really exciting and impressive, or even when God kind of intervenes, just like any parent that says, okay, fine, I'll bail you out this time, right? You can't keep doing it every time and have them grow up. In fact, of all the parents that I've talked with who are raising kids, the only reason a loving parent stops bailing their kid out is because they don't think that they'll grow up if they keep doing it. And so instead, God's going to mature them another way. Like I said, he's going to mature them through providing for them and showing them that they can trust him. Faith means confidence and trust. Having faith in God means trusting in him and having confidence in him every day when we walk forward. Trusting him and having confidence in him every day. And we should develop an emotional and theological maturity to not demand that God constantly, divinely intervene in every situation, just like mature adults don't demand this of their parents. And this is how children grow and mature. When Ellie and I adopted our son, Tegan, and we brought him home uh, from Ethiopia, he was 15 months old, and when we did, we had a lot of counselors and a lot of friends tell us that it would be important that we, could do, that we do this thing called cocooning, which sounds really creepy and weird. And... And 
and what it is. And we had like a blog at the time, and so we wrote on our blog, we're going to be cocooning. And, uh, and I put like a picture of that movie, Cocoon, you know, um, and was like, this is what we'll be doing. It's like a bunch of old people in a swimming pool in these alien cocoons. No, I, I said, we're going to be cocooning, and, uh, and here's what it means, and here's why you're not going to like it to all of our friends and family. Because people had told us, they said, your son has been living in a transition home for, for his, really in some form or another, an orphanage or transition home his whole life up till now. And, and he's had lots of adults taking care of him, and he's had lots of children around him. But what he doesn't really understand is the concept of a few people that are like his people, his parents. The two people that he can depend on no matter what happens for the daily needs of life. And he needs to develop that. He needs to know that you're his parents and no one else is and that you'll be there for him no matter what. So what you do is you spend like three months of your life being the only ones that in any way care for him. You're the only one that gets to hold him. You're the only one that gets to feed him. You're the only one that gets to change him. That's the one that's not fun. You're the only one that gets to bathe him or do anything like that. Now, this was really hard for all of our friends and our family who had been so excited and supporting us all the way up to this point and wanted more than anything to meet Tegan and to get to help us with him. I mean, you imagine Ellie's mom who comes with us over to Ethiopia to bring him home. And having such limited contact with him even there because of how much people had urged us to do this thing and how hard that was. And it meant staying in our house for like months with him almost and not even going to church with him, which we wanted to do, wanted to get to meet everybody. But it was true. He was totally overwhelmed and just didn't know how to react and adjust to everything going on. His whole life had ended and now a new one was beginning. And what happened in that process was we attached to one another, right? Attachment. And we know this from knowing how children work and how they develop and grow, that there is so much important, there's so many important things that happen in the earliest years of life for us to form attachments. And that if we don't have that relationship, that it can follow us for the rest of our lives. And that if you have attachment issues, then what that means is that you have a difficulty trusting in any authority. You have a difficulty in believing that things will be okay and that people will in any way ever be able to really be trusted and be able to care for you because you couldn't trust those people that everybody feels like they're supposed to be able to trust. And you struggle with that, often for the rest of your life. This is exactly what it is to raise someone up. At the very fundamental level, it is to say, I will be here so that you know that you have everything you need today. Whether you like it or not, whether you grumble or not, it's still going to be there and it's still going to happen. And this is what God does with the Israelites. He says, I'm going to put you in the wilderness and I'm going to force you to depend on me in a supernatural way that nobody would ever depend on a God in this way. And what you're going to get out of that is that you're going to grow up in that. And I want to grow you into a people who have a relationship with me where you depend on me and you know what that is. There is just nothing better, like I said, than trusting in God. There's nothing better than his provision and being able to know that that is enough for us. And when we're honest, many of us have such a hard time believing that, that we know exactly what it's like to not be able to trust that. And the truth is that God has been very gentle with most of us, honestly. We're talking about this uh, in, a, in, a, in a country with great wealth at a time of great abundance, many of us having lived lives of great comfort, many of us having things that most people on earth haven't had in living.
He has allowed us to come to know him under circumstances often of abundance and comfort. We have homes and cars and food. We have family. We have vacations. We have savings. We have retirement. Many of us have health. We have these things that we often take for granted in talking about God's provision. And it's oftentimes those things that distort our view of what God's provision really looks like, which is why the more abundant and the more wealthy a society becomes, often the less grateful that we become for what we have. We believe a lie that says that the better our circumstances are and the more God lets us have, the more we will love him. And the brighter our light will shine for him. Many of us believe that. We think, like, just give me the thing that I want and that I, that I need. And if you do, then, yes, I will love you more. And yes, won't I be able to be a light that will shine brightly for you, God? And yet we don't recognize that the majority of people who have made the biggest impact for Jesus in our world are people who have, in the daily ins and outs of life, reflected an attitude of gratefulness for the way that God has provided for them. no matter how mundane, no matter how repetitive, no matter how ordinary or normal. Now, here's the thing. So holy people grow up. And the other thing that we see about the danger of grumbling versus being a grateful people is that grumbling is actually very toxic. Apart from the fact that it spreads quickly between people. Uh, one of the things that I learned um, early on in just forming relationships with people in my life was that you can actually connect more easily with people through negativity and being negative than you could through positivity. Isn't that weird how that works? That, that if you gossip or get down on something or complain about something, that, that there's something disarming about that for some reason for a lot of people, and it actually makes it easier to drop down your barrier and your guard and to talk by simply being critical, by simply being negative, by simply grumbling. It spreads so easily and so quickly. Because we all kind of have this tendency to want to not be grateful. And so all it takes sometimes is a person next to us not being grateful. And then we go, okay, good, there's two of us. Now I have a reason, right? Now it's legitimate. Now it's a real thing. Now it's grounded in something and I can give words to it. So apart from it being toxic because it spreads so much, grumbling is toxic because it hardens our hearts. And we read about this again and again in the Bible. It says in Psalms 95, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. There's something that happens to people the more they grumble. It hardens their hearts. It hardens and calluses their ability to actually see God. That when God is providing and you refuse to see it, then it affects your ability to see him provide tomorrow and the next day. And that that is like a hardening of our heart, which is what we see happen with God's people often. The other thing that's interesting about this, and I won't read it directly out of the text, but um, if you're familiar at all with the circumstances by which God gave them food and water, you know about this. And, and it, there was a little bit of a reference to it in the beginning that we read. He gives them enough food every day, daily food. And he says, you can't save it up. Why? Because that's exactly what we would want to do, right? We'd say, like, let's save up as much as we can, just in case God decides he's not going to bring any more. We'll be okay. He'll understand. He says, nope, every day. You, need to only, you only get enough. And they would save it overnight, and it would be all gross, right? And they wouldn't want to eat it again. 
The only time that that didn't happen, he said, was on the Sabbath, the day of rest. It's so fascinating and interesting and important. It's significant that God, even in this, emphasizes the need for his people to rest, right? Following God can be exhausting. Living for someone else's glory can be exhausting. Living in the wilderness can be exhausting. And he recognizes this. And he calls his people from creation to rest. And he makes it such a priority because if you don't make rest a priority, then it won't happen, right? Holy people also are people that can rest. And why is that so important? Because the reason we don't rest, the reason that we're anxious and we're overworked and we're overburdened is because our very significance is wrapped up in the things that we do. That's why. The reason we can't rest is usually because we need to be doing these things too much rather than be doing them as sort of unto the Lord and then saying, I can rest when the time comes. I was talking with, uh, with Sue. She didn't say this. I said this. I was talking with Sue and I was like, man, I'll bet, it's, I'll bet there's like a little part of you that's like almost like frustrated that you have to like, you, you can only plan so much for VBS stuff up until the Sunday morning before and then we do all the stuff after because yeah, we have church and yeah, this is good, but it's kind of like there's all this stuff we need to put up and there's all this stuff we need to do. I guarantee you guys, there's like a, there's like a wall holding it back and if you stick around long enough, you're going to see like people descending upon every, every part of this place and getting it ready for tomorrow morning and there has been so much work going into it and it has been incredible and there is so much that's going to come this next week, but I guess it's kind of a good thing, right, that you have time where you have to stop and you have to rest, right? Where you worship and you spend time sort of like be, once again reflecting upon the reason why you're doing these things and the God who you're serving in this time. One of the hardest, one of the, one of the groups of people that has the hardest time resting are people involved in ministry. If you're involved in church, if you're involved in doing things for the kingdom, you maybe have the hardest time resting, because either, like, the rest is something that you're volunteering to help make happen, right, for other people, because it's on Sabbath, it's on the day that we get together, or it's just the fact that you go, yeah, but God, does God really want us to rest from that kind of a thing that we do to serve him? Rest was so important that he didn't even want them to go out and gather food and collect food for that day. He wanted them to be able to save it up and know that no matter what happens tomorrow, we can completely rest, connect with our God, connect with each other. And this is one of the best ways that we can demonstrate our trust in God is our ability to do this. Rest is resting and trusting that God can provide. Now, yes, there are lazy people and they rest all the time. And that's always like the thing that people say, oh, what about lazy people, right? Well, if you're not lazy, then don't worry about it, okay? Trusting that God can provide is a hard thing to do. And we ultimately can't fully rest unless we can do that. Before this time, gods were very different in people's mind and the way they understood them. This was at a time and in a world in which gods were unpredictable in every way. Uh, if, if, if it rained, then that meant God was giving you food. And if it didn't rain, that meant that God didn't want to give you food. And then you tried to figure out what to do to make the God happy. Do we sacrifice people? Do we sacrifice stuff? What do we do? We'll do whatever we can. And there are entire cultures that spent years and years and years doing whatever that they could to try to appease the gods so that they could make them happy. And one of the things about the God of the Old Testament that we read is how clear he makes it for them. He says, here's how you live for my glory, 
And here's how you know that regardless of what happens around you in the wilderness, I will be providing for you, and I haven't changed my mind, and I haven't stopped doing it. Now, what that is to do is it is to give us a sense of confidence and assurance and knowing that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is true, that we don't need to worry about tomorrow, that we have enough today. So for many of us, we, we see what happened with the Israelites, and we recognize that growing and being mature, being a grateful people, is largely the ability to say, I trust that I have what I need today. And that tomorrow will take care of itself. That God's grace for me today is enough. That God's provision for me today is enough. That God's mercy for me today is enough. You might be hearing this and going through the most difficult time of your life. God's grace for you today is enough. His mercy for you today is enough. His provision for you today is enough. You may be hearing this and going through a wonderful time of ease in life in which it's easier to think that. But it's not like that because your life is easy right now. It's like that because God says, I will provide. And I will do it in a way that people will look at me and they will give me the glory. They won't be prone to give you the glory if we allow that to happen and we don't take the credit for ourselves and the glory for ourselves. This is one of the hardest things for us to take confidence in and trust God has given his people every reason to believe that they can trust him, that he'll provide for them. It's up to them to decide if they're going to grow up in this, if they're going to be grateful, and if they're going to be able to interact with him like adults interact with their parents, or if they're going to remain like children and expect him to constantly intervene and bail them out through the miraculous. I think that as we worship and as we reflect on this, I think that that's something that we all need to spend time, I think, thinking about and praying about and asking God about and talking with him about is, is, is our ability right here and right now to say, God, I, I do trust that you have given me enough, that what you've given me is sufficient. It may not be what I wanted. It may not be what I asked for. It may not be how I thought things would go, but what you've given me is sufficient, and because of that, I can trust you. And if we recognize within ourselves kind of a heart of grumbling and a spirit of grumbling rather than one of gratefulness for where he's brought us, thinking, well, my circumstances, my situation, my life, my family, my things are different, I can grumble rather than say, I can be grateful because he's given me enough. Let's pray. Father, um, I can't say we're grateful because we aren't all grateful, Lord. I, I, I often am not myself, and I, I, I say, Lord, our prayers that we would be grateful. God, there's so many parallels in the way that the Israelites see you, the way they come back to you time and time again, Lord, questioning and with skepticism, and above all else, Lord, with fear. This group of people that you have brought through so much can still be so prone to fear, Lord. God, I pray that you would give us peace, Lord. I pray that you would show us how great it is for you to get glory, Lord. 
I pray not that we would be overwhelmed with guilt if we're the ones trying to take the glory for ourselves, if we recognize that we're trying to live for our own significance and ambitions and accomplishments and achievements, that ultimately we live our lives like people who our whole significance in the universe is dependent upon what other people think of us and what we accomplish in these few years we have here alive. I pray that you would show us how empty that is and that you would show us instead how glorious and wonderful it is to see you get the glory, Lord to see you glorified. I pray that seeing how much better one is makes it easier for us to let go of the other. That it not be about guilt and, and regret and shame and anger, but it would be instead about seeing something more beautiful and wanting to live for that, Lord. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Knowing that you are a giver of good gifts, Father, and for many of us who are grateful for the gentleness that we have experienced in life, Lord, from you that, that celebrate all these good things that you've given us and done, our prayer is that we would not love those things, but we would instead love you, the one who gives them to us. Lord, that, that you, the one who is the giver of all good things, Father, that we would have gratefulness for you regardless of what comes our way. And for those of us who struggle, Father, who feel discouraged, who feel like grumbling and complaining, I pray that you would help us to do what the psalmists show us, which is to express our hearts, our anguish, our fear sometimes, our anger and frustration even to you, but to be careful about what we say to others, Lord, because we recognize how easy it is for those things to spread and that we would be grateful people um, to others, Lord, that we would show them what that looks like and that we'd be encouragement to that to them, Lord. That's our prayer this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.